In 2023, China Talk is going to Congress. Our first guest of the series is Ro Khanna, Democratic representative of the 17th Congressional District of California, which represents Silicon Valley. We'll get into the congressman's visions of economic patriotism, the future of American industrial policy, the China Committee, and maybe a little AI too. Co-hosting with me today is Associate Director at the Federation of American Scientists, Divyansh Kaushik. Welcome to China Talk YouTube. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Jordan, for having me co-host this. Uh, and thanks, Congressman, for joining us. The administration put forward this, what they call the modern American industrial policy. Uh, Congress has put hundreds of billions of dollars towards uh, this whole idea that you know we have to steer investments or crowd in capital. Uh, say, if 10, 20 years from now, this were to fail, what would, in your view, be the biggest reason? And what would, in your view, be would be the biggest reason for its success? Well, the failure would be because we weren't strategic enough. I've called uh, in the Foreign Affairs article with Senator Rubio for the creation of an economic development council, like a national security council, that would get all of the agencies on the same page uh, under the direction of the president that would make sure that we had a coordinated response uh, and an expeditious response so that we were targeting uh, places that had faced deindustrialization that we had a comprehensive approach, not just the financing of capital for factories, but uh, making sure that we were streamlining uh, permitting without compromising the environment, making sure that labor standards were being upheld, making sure we were investing in the workforce. Uh, and so uh, I expect some of the things to succeed, uh, but if there were failures, it would be because of the lack of coordination and planning. And what would be some of your reasons for its success? Well, I think the Chips Act, the Chips and Science Act were very strong. Of course, I'm biased. I uh, was a uh, original author of it with Senator Schumer, Todd Young, and 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 Mike Gallagher. Uh, but there you have the government cooperating with the private sector, financing new factories, uh, an effort with the state government also investing in new workforce, uh, and you have investments in new science and technology. So I think that close collaboration between government, educational institutions, uh, and the private sector, as well as labor, is so critical. So you mentioned um, sort of being strategic, and uh, you listed a number of sort of potential priorities for um, for American industrial policy. But sort of being strategic uh, ultimately means making trade-offs. Um, so you know when you're talking about um, you know, regional regional diversity and, and looking at industry by industry, like what is your preferred sort of framework that you would want to sort of impose on whoever is going to do the analysis that would try to maximize whatever um, return that uh, Congress is hoping its monies will end up uh, bringing back to the uh, American people and you know, future economic growth? Well, I would look for a moonshot of economic revitalization in factory towns that have been shuttered in communities that have been decimated because of 70,000 factories closing and the offshoring of jobs. So I look at places that have faced that kind of economic de devastation and say, how can we have economic redevelopment there and what kind of industries, what kind of supply chains can thrive uh, in those places? The second thing I would look at is how do we lower our trade deficit, particularly with China, but also globally, and have that as a metric in our uh, consideration. And the third thing I would uh, look at are what are some of the key industries uh, where new technology and innovations and manufacturing process uh, can have that being done in the United States. Semiconductor chips, steel, aluminum, 
uh, battery plants, uh, all are candidates for that. So you you mentioned uh, financing before, and uh, you know identifying these industries, and uh, so you uh, and your work with Senator Rubio on this, you introduced the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act recently, and part of that uh, for our readers and uh, uh, listeners is that. It, it also gives $20 billion to Treasury's Federal Financing Bank to crowd in other federal financing investments. Uh, Congressman, could you share your vision uh, with our audience? Uh, and if you don't mind, also your thoughts on how the private sector investors should view this opportunity of crowding in capital. Well, this is building on the work of the CHIPS Act, but the idea is that we should have an economic development council like the National Security Council that helps finance new industries in places that have been left out of the global economy, particularly in strategic industries, that has all of our federal agencies and government working together to streamline the process of building these new industries, and that is providing uh, federal capital if the private sector is investing in America. We're not going to give a tax cut or subsidies for CEOs to pocket that money and then build the factories in Malaysia or Vietnam. But if they're building the factories in the United States, if they can meet the rigors of the free market by getting some seed private capital, then that private capital can be scaled with the federal investment. And the federal investment, federal financing bank should be looked at as a scaling bank, one that allows uh, market-tested technology that's being invested in the United States to scale into factories. Could you talk a little bit about the appetite for bipartisan spending and sort of dollars around these sorts of things, which I think, you know, a decade ago, um, it was only Rubio on the other side of the aisle. And now we're we're having more and more folks um, of the Republican persuasion be open to this sort of stuff. Um, do you see this as, as something that could last um, decades or more? Or was there something particularly unique about, you know, the post-COVID moment maybe that uh, allowed uh, allowed these bills to get across the finish line? I do think there was a uniqueness to the post-COVID moment where people said, we didn't make masks in America. We didn't make enough baby formula in America. We don't make Tylenol, enough Tylenol in America. What happened? How is it that we're waited, waiting and so dependent uh, with the trucks lying vacant because we don't have a semiconductor chip? It jolted America into understanding the value of manufacturing and production. Uh, and there has been uh, a bipartisan activity, but the Republican Party honestly is uh, a bit divided, schizophrenic on this. You have Rubio, who takes it seriously on economic development, vis-a-vis China. You have people, though, on the Freedom Caucus who say, I don't want to spend a dollar. I don't care what it's for. And so it's a tension within the Republican Party. Which direction are they going to go? In smart government productive spending or in vocal opposition to all government spending? And that's, I think, why Rubio and I are off by a factor of a couple zeros. I, I want $2 trillion of this over 10 years to really revitalize industry uh, is for 20 billion. I appreciate intellectually him joining this and, uh, with some courage to get on a bipartisan bill, but to really do this in a way that people are gonna feel we need to have the investment behind it. Let's talk a little bit about the Democratic Caucus for a second. You know, What are the sort of different strains of how people are viewing these sorts of um, initiatives from your side of the aisle? I think that some people are most of the Democratic caucus is fine on the research and uh, technology aspect of it. Uh, there's probably some division on how much do we want to uh, support uh, industry in doing it and how much do we want to support the private sector in doing it uh, and how much do we just want the, these to be government jobs. 
I point to Roosevelt's famous speech, FDR's speech, where he talked about the right to a job. That was not a right to a job just in government. It was a right to a job in private, in mining, in construction, a lot of private industries when FDR talked about it. 85% of jobs in this country are private sector jobs. We want to make sure that private sector jobs are part of the development narrative, but they need to be conditioned on good labor standards. But the big debate, I think, in our caucus is uh, how much do we support uh, a company like Intel in building these factories when it is a private sector company? And what are the conditions uh, limiting stock buybacks or for labor pay that are critical? Talking about support tech, Intel, uh, and chips and science. Uh, so last year, when you uh, when Congress was deliberating on chips and science act, over four dozen national security leaders wrote to Congress, including former secretaries of defense, energy, homeland security, CIA, NSA directors, uh, even a former vice had uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, who wrote that you know we need to pair this with talent reforms, uh, and they specifically called on Congress to look at. STEM immigration as a critical component for chips and science, and that clearly did not go anywhere And uh, last year. But you've got a great bipartisan working relationship on the Hill. Uh, so do you think that there is an opportunity to do some of that work in this Congress? I'm going to try to build the Intel factories in Ohio, create the blue-collar jobs. You need the PhDs. And to, need, to, to have those PhDs who understand semiconductor production, right now, many of them aren't in the United States. I want massive investment in the engineering programs, in the PhD programs, in the STEM programs in the United States to revitalize our capacity to lead in these areas. But we also need to complement that with immigration that, that will allow for the uh, manufacturing uh, to, to, to lead, if allow us to lead in manufacturing in this country. Of course, it's personal to me. My father immigrated to America, coming to Michigan, studying chemical engineering in the 1960s when America said we needed immigrants to win the Cold War. So I will continue to work on immigration reform and link that to our manufacturing agenda, link it to our place-based agenda. And we know that when you have this kind of immigration uh, with, with incredible talent into a community, it creates economic growth. China is projected to graduate twice as many PhD students uh, next by 2025 that, uh, as compared to the United States. Uh, how do you view like investments? Uh, like the, the, you just talked about the role of immigration reform. Uh, you think there are additional steps Congress should be taking on STEM education as well for domestic students as well? Yes, we need to make STEM the the the, the part of national pride, national renewal. I think that starts with simple things as the president of the United States recognizing through prizes, uh, through uh, events, the, the Oscar-like events, uh, the value of STEM in this country. Uh, and then, of course, it needs to be financed. I, I would say we should be financing STEM PhDs. I mean, they may be having a free education. Maybe we pay them for their living expenses or allow them to earn uh, an income. We need to provide, provide tax incentives for people to go in to STEM uh, fields where they may be uh, saving on their uh, taxes to, to incentivize people doing these PhDs instead of just having our best and brightest uh, go to Wall Street or uh, into software in Silicon Valley. We're going to have to have a uh, whole of nation approach uh, in building the, the, the PhD and college STEM talent that we, that we need. So let's talk a little bit about the 
China committee, what are your um, sort of thoughts, reflections, hopes, dreams, worries um, about where uh, Representative Gallagher might be taking this uh, this initiative? Well, I voted for the committee. I have a good relationship with uh, Representative Gallagher. We came into Congress together. He's a Marine, a PhD. We don't always agree, but I think he's going to be serious about the security risk uh, that Taiwan poses about making sure that there's deterrence for any military invasion. But I do want us to focus also on the economic issues, on the immigration issues. We need to make sure that if we're going to compete with uh, China, that we have a rational immigration policy, that we have a rational policy on STEM education that allows for production to return and that we rebalance our trade deficit. And uh, if Leader Jeffrey selects me to be on that committee, I will be bringing uh, that perspective to the committee. Um Export controls for a little bit. What would you want to take the pulse on Congress on how uh, how how these sorts of uh, actions that the BIS has been pushing have um, uh, been taken, and you know what sorts of nudges uh, uh, Congress or the China Committee in particular might be interested in um, pushing around those lines. Well, I think the export controls are are, are important. I think that uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor Sullivan. Uh, had a very important contribution here where he restricted uh, advanced logic chips uh, to go to uh, China or the tools that make advanced logic chips. And what was so impressive about this is he's uh, gotten uh, commitments from now the Netherlands, Japan, uh, also, I think, to, to restrict that. These restrictions have to be uh, with our allies or you're just penalizing American companies and not uh, achieving the goal. So I would focus on the export restrictions on the most highly sensitive technology. On the other hand, we want to be exporting more of our products to China to reduce the trade deficit. And Chairman uh, Michael McCall was sharing the House GOP China Task Force. Like, yeah, they they made an offer initially to the Democratic Party as well to join, uh, put members on the task force. Uh, if, uh, the leadership decided not to, and so they went on their own. Uh, how do you anticipate, like, uh, and uh, Mike Gallagher has also said that he wants to use the work of that task force as, you know, uh, to, to guide his work on the committee. Uh, how do you see that playing into the potential bipartisanship on this committee? Well, the task force, I think, is very different than a committee of Congress. The committee of Congress has much more formal standing. And the good news so far is that the ratio nine to seven is a pretty fair ratio. So it suggests that they want democratic participation. There are a number of areas where Democrats see eye to eye. We see eye to eye that China should not in any way uh, militarily invade Taiwan. With the Republicans, we see eye to eye that uh, there needs to be an economic rebalancing, that there shouldn't be intellectual property theft. Now, there are places where Democrats want to be sure that we don't engage in xenophobia, that we don't engage in anti-China bashing, that we don't push us towards a cold war. Uh, and we will bring that perspective uh, but uh, I'm hopeful it'll be a serious committee uh, that looks at what the posture should be towards China in the 21st century and will outlive this Congress and become a permanent select committee, much like uh, the Intelligence Committee. Uh, we, we focus a lot, and uh, in Congress too, it seems we focus a lot on disentangling uh, you know, the U.S. from China. Do, do you see like there are areas of cooperation where we need to double down instead? There are obviously areas where we do need to cooperate, climate change where we can. We need to work with China uh, on tackling pandemics where we can. We need to 
be uh, have a dialogue with the public health agencies, transparency, rules of transparency with them. Uh, we need to maintain dialogue so that there isn't uh, a, a risk of accidental war. So I uh, am uh, for uh, engagement, but with an engagement with, with open eyes and with a concrete goal of lowering our trade deficit to bring jobs home and not have this massive offshoring of our production. Sure. Coming to your foreign affairs piece, uh, one of the arguments you make is that there's there's a universe in which Beijing potentially could get on board with a, a an initiative that the U.S. would push forward to lower the trade deficit. Um, talk a little through the logic of um, you know where you what you hope U.S. policymakers, American industry, as well as leadership in Beijing um, uh, could uh, could go down to sort of realize your vision of how this uh, relationship could potentially evolve on a healthier track. Well, first, we need to demand that we're going to lower the trade deficit. It's gone from 60, 70 billion to almost 400 billion uh, and make that very clear to the, to the Chinese government. Uh, when I met with the Chinese ambassador, I said that. And uh, I uh, also said that to the extent we're going to affirm our one China policy, that becomes easier to do if the trade deficit is lowered and people in this country don't think that their parents' jobs were shipped to China and their jobs are continuing to be shipped to China. So, part of, so one of the interests that China has is just to have a more constructive relationship with the United States. Second interest is they have a huge market in the United States. If we start imposing tariffs, that's going to hurt them a, a lot more than it uh, will hurt us just because of the nature of the trade deficit. Uh, the third incentive they have is long-term. Xi Jinping has spoken about increasing consumer demand. They have an economy that is way too dependent uh, on a few Communist Party apparatus and uh, apparatchiks and uh, and factories, uh, and not on a broad-based consumer demand-driven economy. Now they have a need for jobs, and that's why they've been prioritizing it. But if they don't increase the consumer demand, uh, that's not a long-term sustainable uh, strategy. And so, rebalancing to some extent is in their long-term interest. Um, do you think China could do anything over the near to medium term to sort of change the temperature of how? Congress sees um, China or the future of the relationship? Yes. I mean, stop uh, the artificial depreciation of their uh, currency by uh, uh, buying up uh, American reserves uh, and to, uh, to uh, work with us to lower the trade deficit, to identify places where they would buy from American industry and where they would stop subsidizing cheap imports that are dumping into the U.S. markets. If... China's growth slows into the medium term, and we're talking sort of one, two, three percent growth over the next three to five years. Does that make them a less scary competitor going forward? Well, they've slowed to about three percent for the first time. Uh, I don't uh, wish any country uh, a, a lower growth uh, that hurts their own people. Uh, and I don't think that we should be counting on the other team, uh, the other side failing. That would be like going into a football game saying we're only going to score seven points because the other team is is not going to score. Uh, I think we need to make sure that we have a strategy that assumes that China will rebound and be strong. Any thoughts on TikTok? Is this uh, something Congress should take on? Okay to leave to the executive branch? I don't think Congress should get involved. I mean, my view of the ideal solution is the forced sale of TikTok so that it, it, people can still use it, but their data isn't going to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, president should be headed in that direction. I know he's reviewing it and Congress uh, 
uh, should weigh it. Congressman, have you used ChatGPT? I have. Uh, what'd you ask it to do? I was candidly very unimpressed. I was on the uh, floor of uh, the House of Representatives and Jonathan Jackson was a brilliant guy, son of Jesse Jackson, civil rights hero. He told me that we were talking about Martin Luther King Day. And uh, he told me that uh, they, that Thoreau, who I knew had influenced Gandhi's uh, civil disobedience, that Thoreau actually was influenced by the Bhagavad Gita. And I didn't know that. Jonathan Jackson knew that. And uh, he said, you should really read Thoreau's writing. He was influenced by the Gita. Uh, and that informed his views on civil disobedience. So I was kind of feeling like, well, what is this chat TDP thing? Can it give me as much insight as Jonathan Jackson? was not a philosopher but certainly understands uh, the history of the uh, civil rights movement. And I asked Chad GTP, uh, in what way was uh, Thoreau's writing on civil disobedience uh, that influenced Gandhi influenced by the Gita? And I got an essay that I wouldn't have given a passing grade if they had written for that at, at Stanford, basically saying, Thoreau, looked to the Gita. Gandhi looked through the Gita, dressed up with fancy words and paragraphs, but with no depth of analysis. Then I realized, well, if coders are writing how to do the searches, are the coders philosophers? Are they philosophers to the level that Jonathan Jackson is thinking about this? So I'm fine. I think it's going to help people uh, better than Cliff Notes and probably write fine papers uh, and probably do a lot of tasks. But it's a far way from deep thinking. So we'll, in six months, we'll ask it the same question and see if it does any better. Um, why should people read the Gita? Gita is the, one of the most profound books. It's like the Bible. It's uh, uh, full of uh, lessons about life. The central lesson, of course, is uh, to do your duty without uh, a concern for the external rewards, and that ultimately, if you do that, uh, the rewards will follow. Coming back to AI for a bit, uh, the the AI Act uh, that that Congress passed uh, a couple of years ago, like established the National AI Research Resource Task Force uh, at the NSF. It, the work has been going on for about a year now, they released an interim report say that calls for about like, thinks about the $1.2 billion investment over six years, essentially creating a national AI research cloud, uh, providing, you know, democratizing access to AI resources, providing academia, small businesses, the same level of compute that say Google or OpenAI have. Uh, do you have thoughts on whether once the, the final report is supposed to come out in a couple of weeks, I believe, uh, uh, do you have thoughts on like whether Congress uh, would be willing to spend on democ democratizing access to compute? Like, you know, the, the whole idea being a kid sitting in Akron would have similar access uh, and they could do the same level of research that someone at MIT or Stanford is able to do. And it's a wonderful idea. I think we want to be spending on democratizing access to technology. And we also want to be spending on a AI's transformative uh possibilities. Right now, AI is so data dependent, and that is the model with which many tech companies are spending. But there's research being done at MIT or other places about how to make AI less data dependent. Uh, you know, when a young kid learns the word cat, they don't see thousands of pictures of cat. The human mind is more complex. So I'm all for uh, federal research into AI to make it less data dependent. What else do you think kind of Congress can do to get ready for the, you know, potentially transformative potential of these technologies? Well, we have to be looking at jobs. What are the types of jobs in manufacturing and services that are going to be done? And how do we make sure those are good paying jobs? What are the jobs paying right now? I mean, a lot of 
AI is dependent on people who are inputting data, and those are very poorly compensated jobs. How do we make sure that those jobs are better compensated? How do we make sure AI is being used in ways that enhance productivity, even in the service sector, that make those jobs, home care or uh, elder care, a better compensating and more uh, productive? Maybe they can do medical tests or help people uh, take their medicine. Uh, what are we doing to limit uh, the abuses of AI that uh, perpetuate profiling or that perpetuate our own biases? What are we making sure, doing to make sure that AI is safe? This entire framework is going to need thoughtful policy and regulation. So maybe zooming out even further, um, your sort of top analytical questions that you wish you had answers to around um, I don't know, industrial policy or, or technology policy more generally? Well, the first would be uh, case studies of where uh, place-based economic development has worked, uh, what the uh, key ingredients of success in those areas are, uh, where uh, we should be targeting uh, place-based economic development, uh, what industries should those uh, be focused on in particular geographies that are most likely to succeed. Uh, it is a huge uh, undertaking, and that's why it, this council that I'm talking about should be reliant on the work of people like Danny Roderick and uh, Gordon Hansen uh, and others uh, and, and a battalion of economists to, to, to look at uh, and inform policymakers. Uh, in terms of technology policy, what I uh, would be most interested in is how do we democratize the gains of technology. Uh, we know that technology is going to lead to productivity increases. We know that it's going to lead to huge wealth generation. Uh, we know that it's being used to uh, engineer the architecture of uh, modern discourse, this podcast being one example. How do we make sure that more Americans uh, and ultimately people in the world have access uh, to technology, uh, empowering them both uh, as uh, financial creators uh, as inventors and as citizens. It may strike some listeners as surprising that the representative from Silicon Valley, uh, arguably the place in America that's benefited most from, you know, place-based economics or, you know, returns to like people living all together in one space is so focused on kind of bringing that to the rest of the, um, uh, the rest of the country. Well, I can hawk my book, Dignity in a Digital Age, which is all about that. But the, uh, point is that you can't have a nation survive uh, or thrive, certainly, if uh, opportunity is concentrated uh, to the level it has. And uh, the whole hope of technology was decentralization. The whole idea is that you don't have to be congregated in a specific place in order to uh, achieve your potential. Uh, I uh, love Silicon Valley. I think it's wonderful to have that ecosystem, but we've got to create uh, the other thriving ecosystems across the country and make sure that the prosperity of the valley is linked to the prosperity of factory towns and uh, rural communities and black and brown communities across our nation. We focus a lot on supply chain resiliency when we were, uh, you know, during the, the chips shortage, uh, during the baby formula shortage. Uh, how do you view like the role of the federal government in stress testing supply chains uh, and whether the administration should be taking a lead in that? I do think the federal government should be uh, looking at supply chains and where there are shortages and making sure that we're 
working with the private sector to, uh, to, to address those. But I think this is, again, where this National Economic Development Council can do that, as opposed to ad hoc uh, reports in a particular agency. We need to have the, a coordinated approach with the private sector uh, on how do we rebuild industrial capacity in America. I mean, I wonder to what extent these are like knowable questions, like, you know, you can do stress tests of banks in 2006 based on your assumptions of what makes sense. Yeah. And you could come up with flying colors. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, you pull up some weird, you pull out some weird plank in a, the Jenga of the global supply chain. And all of a sudden, you know, you have five other things that you couldn't have even uh, imagined were connected be, be, yeah. be falling through. So I guess like. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think anyone could have said uh, that we would run out of baby formula or that we would need masks. Semiconductor chips probably more uh, more easily anticipated. But that is why I think a focus on building as much productive capacity in America is what's needed. And with that, uh, good things will will follow. Um, What aren't people talking about? that they should be. What should journalists be? Uh, journalists and um, uh, uh, and uh, you know concerned citizens be prodding their um, their representatives to uh, to be focusing on uh, in twenty twenty three. Well, where can we find common ground and a shared national purpose? In my view, that again is uh, looking at places that have been left out, looking at why there's so much anger there, why people feel that the American dream is slipping away, uh, and how do we renew that sense of possibility? Uh, for people to be productive citizens, for them to have uh, a livelihood that brings them economic security. Uh, I think those are areas where the country can fashion a common purpose uh, and uh, uh, emerge from these tumultuous years with, uh, with, with a shared vision, uh, and that should be further explored. Congressman, we end every episode with a song. Um, any song to capture your vision of a revitalized America or um, uh, your disappointment in ChatGPT's uh, Thoreau analysis? Well, Bruce Springsteen's My Hometown is pretty relevant. He, he, he is singing about uh, leaving his hometown because uh, of uh, the closure of textile mills and uh, how his uh, son won't get to grow up there. And that uh, captures it, it, I think, what many Americans uh, went through in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you. I mean, streets, whitewashed windows, vacant stores. Seems like there ain't nobody wants to come down here no more. They're closing down. Textile mill across the railroad tracks. On and says these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back to your hometown. To your hometown. Your hometown. To your